So, Lord, we pray that you would seal our hearts for your courts above. And even more than that, we thank you that maybe our hearts in some amazing way are the courts above, that you make us your sanctuary, your temple, the place of your dwelling. And so now, Lord, we pray that um, you would inhabit us and that together you would cause us to preach your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Like they are, she had taken his hand. 
It's no good. I, 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 I just can't go on. I'm no good anymore. I, I want to end it all. Goodbye. Goodbye. Yes? Is it about the hedge? Look, I'm awfully sorry. I but... am the Grim Reaper. Who? The Grim Reaper. Yes, I see. I am death. Yes, well, the thing is, we've got some people from America for dinner tonight. Who is it, and... darling? It's a Mr. Death or something. He's come about the reaping. I don't think we need any at the moment. Hello. But don't leave him hanging around outside, darling. Ask him in. Darling, I don't think it's quite the moment. Do come in. Come along in. Come and have a drink. Do. Come on. I am not of this world. Good Lord. I am death. Well, isn't that extraordinary? We were just talking about death only five minutes ago. Yes, we were, you know. Whether death is really the end, as my husband uh, Howard here feels, or whether there is, and one so hates to use words like soul or spirit, but... What other words can one use? Exactly. You do not understand. Ah, no. Obviously not. Well, let me just tell you something, Mr. Death. You don't. Just one moment. I'd like to express on behalf of everybody here what a really unique experience this is. Yeah, yeah. Yes, we're so delighted that you dropped in, Mr. Death. Can I just finish, please? Mr. Death, is there an afterlife? Dear, if you could just wait, please, moment. Are you please, sure you wouldn't like some sherry? Angela, I'd like you to say this at this time, if I could, please, really. Be quiet. Can I just say this at this time, please? Silence! I have come for you. You mean to take you away? That is my purpose. I am death. Well, that's cast rather a gloom over the evening, hasn't it? Don't see it that way, Jeff. Let me tell you what I think we're dealing with here. A potentially positive learning experience that can... Shut up! Shut up, you American. You always talk, you Americans. You talk and you talk and you say, let me tell you something and I just want to say this. Well, you're dead now, so shut up. Dead?
In one of his books, my old friend Dr. Tony Campolo from Eastern University uh, points out that many sociologists have noted how peasants in agrarian societies avoid the consciousness of death through bickering. And then he goes on to point out that we all do just the same. And it reminds me of that Monty Python clip because we talk and we talk and we talk about death, but none of us really understands death. And unless, of course, we've already died. We talk about death hoping to defend ourselves against it. We deny death because we're terrified of the reaper. Bush or Colt saying, seasons don't fear the reaper. In other words, leaves on trees, as far as we can tell, don't all of a sudden cry out, I just want to end it all, and then fall to their death weeping. They just obey the will of their creator. They don't fear the reaper. But we do. What's so special about us? Of course we do, for we experience loss consciously, and it hurts. For some of you, death is a distant concept this morning, and so you feel a bit protected. Uh, for some others of, of you, the concept has become reality, that you feel stalking every labored breath, and you see staring back at you in the mirror every morning. For some of you, that reality has overtaken a loved one, and in that way, it's overtaken you. And now you find yourself constrained by despair, driven by despair. Many years ago, I read about a woman who became gravely ill. After a time of convalescing in a hospital, she was sent home but confined to bed. Her eight-year-old daughter was unaware of the terminal status of her illness, this little girl stood outside the bedroom door one afternoon as the doctor and her father uh, spoke with her mother. She overheard the doctor say, Yes, I will be frank with you. The time is not too far off before the last leaves have gone from the trees. You will die. The little girl's presence was undetected. Some, sometime later, the father came down to breakfast and was surprised to not find his daughter there as he expected, and so he looked for her, and then he saw her in the front yard. His heart was broken as he watched her picking up leaves that had begun to fall from the tree. She was using thread to tie the leaves back on to the limbs of the tree. I'm that little girl. You're that little girl. And you're a leaf that loses its life hanging on a tree. Ecclesiastes 11.9, where we left off last time, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things God will bring you into the judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Remember also your Creator in the days 
of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them, before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few and those who look through the windows are dimmed and the doors on the street are shut, when the sound of the grinding is low and one rises at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails. Because man, ha'adam, the Adam, the man is going to his eternal home. And the mourners go about the streets before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. If you would, turn to someone next to you, okay? If you're sitting by someone, just turn to them, and I want you to look deep in their eyes. Go ahead and do it, okay? And then I want you to repeat these words after me. Look in their eyes. You can say these words to each other. Just say, I think. Okay, say it. I think you're going to die. <laughs> Whoa. How'd that feel? Yeah! Wait, what, how'd that feel when you said that? Not today. I'm not gonna today, dang it. But you don't know, right? Others, how did it feel? Did it feel uh, terrifying? Did it feel maybe a little bit like a relief? What's that? You could let your daughter day. Huh? That might be good if you're agreeing with it. I mean, maybe, maybe f f for some, I don't know about for you, but for me, in a way, it's kind of like pointing out a huge elephant in the middle of the room that no one will talk about. Or maybe like, you know, passing gas at a fancy dinner party. <laughs> or the Christmas Eve service. You all look lovely, but I'm sensing something here that we all desperately want to deny. I love Solomon's description of death because number one, it's so in your face so that you just can't deny it. And number two, it's so poetic. In other words, it's not just an idea, it's like a passion uh, that Solomon experiences. Throughout our study of Ecclesiastes, we've noted that there are two ways of knowing. You can take wisdom like fruit from a tree, but the wisdom dies. It becomes just like words in, in a book or laws on a page. You can take wisdom or you can receive wisdom like a bride receives her groom. And then you don't only know about the good, you experience the good. You even give birth to the good. The reaper in the Monty Python sketch says, you don't understand, but it appears that we will all come to know. 12.1, look at it again. Remember also your creator, your creator, 
in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. When you're old, you lose your ability to even experience pleasure. Your eyes dim and your, your ears grow dull of, of hearing taste buds. They stop tasting. My mom was just describing this to me the other day. Verse 2, before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened. That's apocalyptic language. I'm always amazed at how religious people will worry about the end times. When we can guarantee that the end will come in your time, your lifetime, the sun, the moon, the stars will darken for you and you will have an apocalypse. Before the sun, uh, uh, the light of the moon, the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few and those who look through the windows are dimmed and the doors on the street are shut when the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low. Solomon is describing each person as like a house or a temple or perhaps a city and you remember that Solomon built Jerusalem and he built the temple which is the Lord's house the keepers of the house are, are like arms that begin to tremble uh, the strong men are like legs and backs that bend and then won't straighten the grinders are teeth that fall out and become few the, the windows are eyes that dim with cataracts and disease doors are hearts closed in, in fear and ears that no longer hear the, the workers in, in the streets so that one no longer hears the business of, of life out in the world and, and yet one wakens in the night at the sound of a bird because that one can no longer sleep. All the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high and terrors are in the way the almond trees blossom. Almond trees turn pale when they blossom. Kind of like hair turns gray on the head of an old man. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along. Since my heart attack three and a half years ago, I was told that I need to exercise five times a week, and so I'll often ride my bike around the bike tra trails around Bear Creek Lake Park. And, and in the fall, as I am dragging my old weary behind up the hill on my bike near my house i'll watch the grasshoppers who once bounded across the trail drag their old bodies along the season is changing i'll watch caterpillars prepare to spin cocoons and die the season is changing and the reaper is coming the almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails because man, Hadam, is going to his eternal home. And the mourners go about the streets before the silver cord is snapped. Think of like a spinal cord, or the golden bowl is broken. Think of a skull, or the pitcher shattered at the fountain, and the wheel broken at the cistern. You can think of a heart pumping blood, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. Vanity is the Hebrew word habel. 
which can be translated vanity or breath. It's translated with both those two words in the Bible. Vanity. We're, we're, we're like vanity. We're like vapor, you know. Here, here one moment and gone the next. The older you get, the more aware you are of that fact. Solomon wants us to know that we each are going to die. In fact, he puts it in our face as if he wants us to taste it and to know it. And you know, the dying, it start, according to doctors, it starts around 18 or something. I mean, like, he, Solomon wants to know. It seems like God wants us to know. And we don't want to know. Because <laughs> death is like an uninvited guest at our dinner party. Death is so strange, and death feels so wrong. Why? Probably because life feels so right. It's, it's good. Death is the loss of the good, like leaves or fruit falling from some tree. My mom is 89 years old. Remember, she was here last week, and we talk about it. She's preparing to meet the reaper. In November, the sewer line at her condo backed up and flooded the whole place. For two months, she's been living in a nearby hotel, the Marriott near her house. The insurance company uh, paid for it. Well, in the last few weeks, we've been moving her back into her condo. As part of the process, we've had to sort through old pictures of my dad, uh, knickknacks and junk, what others would consider junk, junk from the crawl space that got, you know, damaged by the sewage and, and the gunk. Last week, my mom handed Susan a big stick, stuck in a cheap vase, held in place with plaster, plaster of Paris, and then spray-painted white. And she said to Susan, Susan, take this to Goodwill. And Susan looked at my mom and said, Mom, nobody's going to want this at Goodwill. And I immediately interrupted. I grabbed the stick in the vase and gave Susan this look that meant, just stop talking. <laughs> On the way home, I explained why Mom wouldn't think of throwing it away. I said, honey, that was our Easter tree. I still remember the day we went out and we found that old branch and then we came home and we stuck it in the vase and filled it with plaster of Paris and spray painted it white. I think mom must have got the idea from some magazine or something because you see at Easter we would hang these really cool eggs on, on the rule, really cool for an eight-year-old because you see what we would do is we would hollow out the eggs and then cut this little window in the egg and then in each egg we would build this like diorama of some event in, in the Bible. And on Easter, I, I, around Easter, we'd set the Easter tree on the piano and I, I would just sit there staring at the little dioramas in the eggs and it would fill me with, with faith and hope and, and love. Honey, that's why she can't bear to throw it away. The tree bore fruit. And the fruit is good. When we got home, I immediately took the tree, laid it on the driveway, and just stomped on it with my boots. And then I threw it in the dumpster because I knew that I wanted to keep it forever, along with everything in my mom's crawl space. I wanted to sew the leaves back on the tree. And I knew, 
I just did not have that power. I understand why people become hoarders. So I was trying not to become a hoarder. I understand why they fill their stuff with things that they'll never use or never look at. Maybe we're all hoarders. I mean, maybe that's why we eat so much. Maybe that's why we drink so much. Maybe that's why we buy so much. And then we worry so much about keeping the stuff that we bought. We're trying to sow the leaves back on the tree. We're hiding from the reaper. Death is so strange, it feels so wrong, and it is so terrifying that we all, we all like deny it. And we pay handsomely to do it. How else do you explain a funeral industry that does approximately $20.7 billion worth of business every year in the United States of America? We embalm our dead. We dress them up. We place them in a box with nice satin uh, pillows and uh, comfortable lining as if they're asleep. And we pay about $10,000 a pop in order to, to do so. When my dad died, the coroner's office sent uh, two young men to pick up the body. By the time they got there, rigor mortis had set in. So when they put him on the gurney and, and covered, uh, the, that's the, they covered the body as if it, it, he was asleep, my, my, my dad. They, they put the body on the, they covered the body, and then because of the rigor mortis, his head was stuck up in the air uh, in the position that it had been when it died. I, I, I remember everybody kind of looked in shock. Uh, the young man that had come for the body, one of them, he saw it, he panicked, he grabbed a pillow, he, he bunched it up, and he put it underneath my dad's head as if he were resting. We all just stared at the picture in silence. And then my sister blurted out, He doesn't need a pillow! He's dead! <laughs> it was like a fart at a fancy dinner party. And we all started laughing. According to Sigmund Freud and his followers, civilization, civilization itself is dependent upon our own, upon a repression of our own fear of, of death, the denial of death. Of course, that repressed fear shows up as all sorts of neuroses and psychoses and mental illness, and yet without it, they argue, we would just go strike, stark raving mad in the presence of such overwhelming horror, death. 1974, the neo-Freudian Ernest Becker published his Pulitzer Prize-winning book, The Denial of Death. In it, he argues that we all create, we all work, work to create a heroic self that transcends our physical self and is thereby immortal. We work at love in order to create a self or justify a, a self. The problem comes when myself competes with yourself for greatness, I end up stealing life from your tree and trying to sow that life on, on my tree. And that's not love. That's just the opposite of love. And of course, it doesn't really work anyway. I can't sow life on my own tree. 
Woody Allen was something of a student of Ernest Becker. He includes one of his books in one of his movies even. And Woody Allen commented once upon a time, I don't want to achieve immortality through my work. I want to achieve it through not dying. <laughs> I like that. I like that. We all fear death, and we all repress our fear of death. If you say you have no fear of death, you may have uh, the most fear of death. Dr. Irving Yalom of Stanford University writes, death anxiety is omnipresent in the unconscious. That's an intrinsic component of the human condition. The absence of evident death anxiety at a conscious level does not mean that the individual is without death anxiety. So I guess researchers have actually done this galvanic or something, I don't know how to say it, galvanic or galvanic skin response uh, uh, test and discovered that those who claim to never think about death register the greatest response to words associated with death. They fear death the most. So we all fear death, and we all repress our fear of death, and that produces all sorts of evil. The author of Hebrews writes that the devil has kept us in lifelong bondage. How? Beer? No. <laughs> that could, could involve beer. But he says the devil has kept us in lifelong bondage through the fear of death. Think about it. It's the fear of death that might explain all your addictions. Maybe we really do hoard things because we're afraid to die. We're hanging on to life. Maybe men actually do sleep around, like Olympia Dukakis says in the movie Moonstruck. Maybe men really do sleep around because they're afraid to die. Maybe we won't forgive because we're afraid to die. Maybe we murder and we go to war because we're afraid to die. You know, on 9-11-2001, I remember thinking to myself, the US, U.S. has such an incredible opportunity right now to show how Jesus is different than Muhammad. For instead of revenge, we could display God's judgment of grace. But very soon we went to war. And for the 10,000 that died on 9-11, hundreds and hundreds of thousands, maybe even a million or more than a, than a million, died in countries that had nothing to do with that 9-11 attack. And now the home of the brave is terrified of refugees. that we created. Terrorism is the fear of death. See, maybe the fear of death is like the polar opposite of love. For us, we've learned in Ecclesiastes, love is sacrifice. Love is the sacrifice of the self for the benefit of the other. Love is surrender to death for the sake of life. So maybe all our competition, all our strife, all our sin is a manifestation of the fear of death. The fear that causes us to run and to hide from the reaper. Have you ever noticed how almost all of our monsters are people that refuse to die? Zombies are the living dead that eat the broken body 
of the living and refuse to die. Vampires are the living dead that drink the shed blood of the living and refuse to die. Ghosts are ghosts that refuse to give up the ghost and therefore will not die. And of course, ghosts are not a mere fiction. You can find them in the Bible. Ob is the Hebrew word. Phantasma is the Greek word. They appear to be spirits, familiar spirits, stuck in Sheol or Hades, spirits that have not surrendered their spirit to the God who gave their spirit in the first place. In other words, the dust has returned to the ground and the spirit refuses to return to the God who gave it. Well, I'm just pointing out that all of our problems may come from the fear of death, which leads to the denial of death, that is, running and hiding from the reaper. Sadly, I presided over the funerals of many suicides, and I have prayed for many that are tempted, even by demons, to suicide. I think at times I have been tempted as well. Ironically, I have come to the conclusion or that, that by and away, maybe all the time, people kill themselves because they're afraid to die. <laughs> that is, they judge themselves because they're afraid of the judgment. That is, they uh, seize control because they're terrified to lose control. I don't believe that suicide is the unforgivable sin, but that the problem with suicide is that it doesn't work. You can't kill yourself with yourself. That's just more self. You can't judge yourself uh, with yourself you, you, because you are not the reaper. The lead singer of Blue Usher Cult wrote that he was appalled to find out that people thought Don't Fear the Reaper was a call to suicide. He writes this, It's meant to be a love song where love transcends the actual physical existence of the partners. He, he wrote, love of two is one. In other words, the song is about the sacrifice of self. It's about sacrificing uh, the bubble, you know, that we talked about last time. Sacrificing the bubble which we have constructed in fear to protect ourselves. It's about losing your life for the sake of love and then finding it. Love of two is one. Or maybe three is one. So I'm asking anyway, could it be that all our problems come from the fear of death, which leads to the denial of death, that is, psychically, emotionally, spiritually, and even physically, running and hiding from the reaper? See, I, I think so. And, and what's even more surprising to me is that it's often religious institutions that teach us to do exactly that. We pastors, always looking for ideas to motivate the flock and improve attendance, we find very subtle ways to say something like this. We've got knowledge of good and evil, and if you take it and you consume it, you apply it, to your life, then surely, then surely 
you won't actually die. Surely you won't die. If you take it, you, you won't die. We've got knowledge of good and evil. If you take it and use it to judge yourself and, well, justify yourself, then you don't have to worry about the judgment. You won't be judged. Now, there's a verse in John 11 where Jesus talks about those who live and believe and don't die. But read it closely, and I think you'll see that's because Jesus is arguing that they have already died. As if faith is the death of your own judgment. And there's a verse in John 5 where Jesus mentions those that don't enter into judgment, but I think that's because they've already been judged. You see, it's pretty weird for us to act like Jesus got crucified so that we don't have to get crucified when the one requirement for discipleship is that you would pick up your cross. And it's pretty weird for us to act like we won't be judged when judgment begins with, remember, the household of God. 1 Peter chapter 4. In the American evangelical church, of which I am a part, we actually have taught people that if they just say a little prayer in the back of a pamphlet, they will be saved from the judgment of God. And in this way, we've taught people that there are two kinds of people in the world. Number one, those that get judged and go to hell forever without end. And number two, those people that don't get judged and go to heaven forever without end. The free will folks spin it one way. The sovereignty folks spin it another way. Either they say you may choose poorly or you may not be chosen, but, but either way, Arminian or Calvinistic, we teach people to hide from God's judgment by keeping them terrified of God's judgment based on the idea that we can protect them from God's judgment because only some get judged and some escape the judgment using our knowledge of good and evil. judgment. But that's not the way Solomon or the rest of the Bible talks about judgment. Verse, uh, verse 8, we, we, this is the last one we read. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. Then verses 9 through 13, we're going to talk about next week because they're fascinating. Then Solomon ends Ecclesiastes with chapter 12, verse 14. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or or evil, which I think would include every man, every woman, every child, judgment. See, it's not as if some will get judged and some won't get judged. In chapter 3, verse 16, he wrote this, in the place of righteousness, if you think you're righteous and you won't get, get judged, in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. God will judge the righteous and the wicked. God is testing the children of Adam that they may see that they are but beasts. Remember, all of them, but beasts. 3.20, they all go to one place. 4.4, 4, all their work is envy. 6.6, 6, do not all go to one place. 9.3, the hearts of the children of Adam are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live and after they go to the dead. 11.9, for all these things, God will bring you into the judgment. The mishpat is the Hebrew. Solomon writes as if there's one judgment, 
But not only that, he writes as if there is only one that's judged. And yet all are judged. 12.5, the Adam, ha-adam, the man is going to his eternal home. 12.7, the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit, ruach, returns to God who gave it. That's the breath that God breathed into the Adam in the garden. See, he writes as if we're all one man. He writes as if we are all in this somehow together. We're all one man or in one man, passing through one judgment. We all must come to know somehow that we are but beasts and then watch as God turns us into beauties because that's what he said at the start of the book. Remember, God has made, has made everything beautiful in its time. Solomon can't explain it but he sees it. Every time he goes to the house of the Lord and he sits before the judgment seat of God and the altar on which the lamb is slain in the very spot that the Jews believe God first breathed his breath into Adam at the foundation stone near a tree in the middle of the garden, he sees the mishpat, the judgment of God. Mishpat means judgment, uh, de a decision is a mishpat, a command, but specifically the command or, or the word of the ruler, the king. So the very first mishpat we hear in all of Scripture is what? Ted answered last night, so I'm testing the rest of you. The very first mishpat we hear in all of Scripture is, is what? Say what? There you go, chapter 1, verse 3. Let there be light. That's the decision of the ruler. And what happened? There was light. He spoke a word, and it happened. Pretty cool. That's the first. Uh, let there be light. You know, Jesus even said, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than the light. And then he said, oh, yeah, and I am the light. Uh, the first is let there be light. The second is let there be an expanse. And it happened. There was an expanse. And then there was a third. And then there was a fourth. And then there was a fifth. You get the picture. Creation is the mishpat of God. God speaks his word and creation happens. It happens until we get to the sixth day. For God speaks, let us make Adam, ha-adam, in our own image, after our own likeness, but look around. <laughs> Did it happen? You know, if you are not entirely loving and completely true, remember God is, is love and his word is the truth. If you're not entirely loving and completely true, well then you are an Adam that has not been fully created. As if something strange had happened to God's Word. As if it still must be the sixth day of creation. As if we may be witnesses, uh, as if possibly we could be witnesses to our own creation through the wonder of God's judgment, which is His Word that creates all things.
And now this would be a very good point to remember that we believe, we Christians believe, that the Word of God became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth, and we called Him Jesus. He is the mishpat. He is the judgment of God. But we hated God's judgment and so crucified God's judgment on a tree, which is strange and terrifying indeed, for it makes us wonder, is my judgment stronger than God's judgment? Is my sin stronger than God's grace? We crucified God's judgment. That's our judgment. And God raised him from the dead. <laughs> That's his judgment. His command, Jesus said it, his command. I know his command. It is eternal life. God raised Jesus from the dead, and in the Revelation, we hear his voice calling from the throne as he cries out, Look, I want you to see this. I make all things new. That's the judgment of God. And God's judgment includes you. As I hope you know, because I wrote a book on it, Scripture and science reveal that we're living in the sixth day of creation, being romanced into God's seventh day, the new creation. We are being romanced into agreement with our own creation, romanced by the one that we nailed to the tree in the middle of the garden. That's a story, a good story. On the sixth day of creation, on the sixth day of the week, at the sixth hour of the day, the word of God, who is the life of God, judgment of God, and wisdom of God, hung on the tree in the garden. And everything went dark. And then he cried out, Father, forgive them, and it is finished. What's finished? Creation is finished, and you are finished. You are finished when you meet him at the cross and surrender your judgment to the judgment of God, the judgment of God, and you will meet Christ at the cross, and you will surrender your judgment to his judgment because nothing is more powerful than the judgment of God who is our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. God's judgment is creation. And that means that absolutely everything is grace. Which also means that to know God and to know His Word, something in you must die. That something is the illusion that you are your own creator the illusion that you can save yourself, that you can sow the leaves back on the tree that you call yourself, the illusion that your judgment determines the judgment of God. I'm talking about your ridiculous and obscene pride. Has to die. I'm talking about the old man. I'm talking about the vanity of the vanities. Solomon wrote, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. I've wondered if all includes God. Scripture says God is spirit, which you know also means wind and sometimes breath. Maybe Solomon meant that we can't control God, just like we can't control the wind. We know not whether it come or whether it goeth. Whatever the case, 
Nothing is more real or permanent than God who is love. He is faith, hope, and love. Well, by vanity, I don't know if he means God. I kind of doubt that he means God, but I'm sure that he means us. We are the Hebel, according to Scripture. We are the breath of God. Uh, Hebel, translated vanity, also means breath. All humanity, the Adam, is the breath of God in dust. So the vanity of vanities must be the breath of the, the breast. That is, the people that we think we are. The people and, and the, the world we perceive, the, the people in our world that we think we have created. We've been looking at this picture now for months. The man on the left is the vanity of vanities. He's the beast. He's the empty illusion that I have created with my judgments, which I think the Bible calls sin. The man on the right is the eternal beauty that is the new creation. He is who I truly am, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that I would walk in them. The new man is created in the very place of the old man. For where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. At the cross, what do I do? I confess my old man, my sin, and I receive the new man created by grace through faith. St. Saint Paul wrote, if we are joined with him in a death like his, we will surely be joined with him in a resurrection like his. You see, Jesus didn't come to simply die in our place. So we wouldn't have to. Jesus came to help us die to ourselves and live to God. Jesus came to help us lose our lives so we might find them, lose our old psyches, that old bubble that we constructed that we talked about last time to help us lose it in order that we could love. Jesus lifted his head and he cried out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He was the first Adam to ever do so. Jesus was the first to truly die and the first to truly live. He is the firstborn from the dead, the firstborn of all creation. Jesus came to give us the judgment of God, which is the judgment of love because God is love, which is choosing to lose your life so you can find it in God. You see, the judgment of, of, of God that, that we wanted from the very beginning, well, well, it's more than just like the knowledge of the good. He wants to give us more than just the, the knowledge of the good. He wants to give us the very presence of the good, who is the wisdom of God rising from the dead within us. At the cross, we took knowledge of the good. At the tree, we took knowledge of the good, and everything died. And at the tree, the cross, God gave himself, who is the good, and so we are known by the good like a bride is known by her bridegroom on her wedding night by her groom known by him and everything begins to live see see we don't only know about God's judgment as if we could know about it and use it we're to live God's judgment and give birth to God's judgment we incarnate his word we experience his passion and we actually become his body in other words we begin to love not because of some law but because God himself has made himself our nature you understand 
Our choices do not determine the judgment of God. It's eternal. The judgment of God creates our choices, which are the expression of our eternal nature, a good, free will, faith, hope, and love. So anyway, I took the Easter tree that used to sit on the piano and I threw it in the trash. But the faith, hope, and love that grew on that tree and grew in me is eternal and cannot be destroyed. And you know, it wouldn't surprise me if that tree shows up in the new creation sitting on a new piano in a new living room of my parents' new house from 1972. St. Paul wrote, anyone in Christ is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Look, all things have become new. My entire world will be made new or I will see that it's always been new. Think about Solomon's temple that he built. Solomon's temple, uh, the city of Jerusalem, everything you know, that Solomon thought he built, including himself, you know the story of the Bible, it gets utterly and completely destroyed. And then, Revelation chapter 21, all those things descend eternal and new from God in heaven, the house of God, the city of peace, even the Prince of Peace, a brand new Solomon. I cannot sow the leaves back on the trees, but I can watch them fall from the trees and watch them come back again in the spring, and then I can know that each, each leaf is, is a gift. I can know that life is a gift. And maybe knowing it's all a gift, and I am a gift, and God is a gift, is what will cause me to enjoy God and all His gifts in an eternal, unending, because it is the end, unending spring. Now, I just said way more than we can grasp. But I hope this much is clear. God's judgment is creation and particularly our creation, and that involves a death and a resurrection. In Romans 11, Paul describes God's judgment, saying he consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Then he writes, present yourselves a living sacrifice. Be transformed. The Greek verb is metamorpho. It's where we get our word metamorphosis. Someone once said, what the caterpillar calls the end, God calls a butterfly. I'm saying that you are a caterpillar striving after the wind. And God's judgment is that you will forever be a butterfly riding on the wind. So don't fear the reaper you'll be able to fly. Your old body of flesh is like a cocoon that gets hung on a tree, and then from that shell emerges the new creation. That's God's judgment, that the beast would forever be an eternal beauty, that the worm would become the man.
In Psalm 22, prophetically, Jesus says to the words of David, I'm a worm and no man. Do you understand he became a worm in order to make you a man? That's God's judgment. And not just on some, but on all, all throughout the Old Testament, Psalms, Isaiah 66, Ezekiel, Zephaniah, God promises, God promises to destroy all and then redeem all, to give all a, a new heart, a new nature. It's the same in the New Testament. As in Adam all die, so in Christ will all be made alive, writes Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. But then Paul notes that there's an order. There are some who come to Christ. So there is, there is a difference. He, he says there are some who come to Christ in this age and begin to live now even before their body dies. And there are some who won't come to Christ but hide from Christ, perhaps even until the end, when the end comes to them and they are just a ghost hiding in a pit that some call hell. They hide from the reaper because they're terrified of death. And now it's really, really important that you hear what I say next, all right? So is everybody listening? This is it. Death is not the reaper. <laughs> I think that's a lie from hell to trap us in hell, to run into hell. Death is, is not the reaper. Revelation 14, the seventh trumpet, we meet the reaper. And he's not grim. He is one like a son of man, seated on a white cloud with a crown on his head. Why? Because he's the ruler. He's, he is the, the judgment. He reaps a harvest. He reaps a harvest of bread and wine as if they are his own body. He reaps faith and mercy from the face of the earth. And what he does is reminiscent of what the high priest uh, did in the temple as Solomon who would sit there watching the lamb slain upon the altar. He is, the reaper is, the Lord of the harvest, and he's not death. He's the resurrection and the life, the death of death. His name is Jesus. He said, he said, I will come for you, not death. Life, life will come for you. He causes us to lose our old psyches, which we call the life, and yet we were dead in our trespasses and sins. He causes us to lose our old psyches, uh, to lose them so that we can find them in him. He is the judgment of God. Death is not the reaper. Jesus, your friend, is the reaper. So turn to your neighbor again. All right, the one you talked to before. And just say this. I think you're going to die. But that's okay. Because I'm sure you're going to live. Because our friend Jesus is the reaper. See, that's good news. In 1914, the Empress of Ireland sank off the coast of Canada. 1,015 people died that night. 
109 of those were Salvation Army officers. Not one of them was found wearing a life vest. The few survivors told of what had happened. Upon discovering that there weren't enough life jackets to go around, they said they watched as these Salvation Army officers would run up to people on the ship, take off their own life preservers, and then strap them onto the others. Even big, strong men, they'd strap their life preservers onto them, and then they would say this, Here, take this. I can die better than you. If they said that in arrogance, it was worthless. But if they said that in gratitude, it was the gospel and the power of God. What if we said that to the homeless? Here, take my coat. I can freeze better than you. What if we said that to the hungry? Here, take my dinner, because I can starve better than you. What if we said that to our enemies? Here, come to my house, come to my country, because I can die better than you. You know, maybe if we said that and we meant that, they might actually believe that we knew, that we were familiar with, that we trusted our friend, the reaper. And so he took bread and broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. Take and eat and do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the covenant in my blood. Drink of it, all of you, and do it in remembrance of me, in communion with me. You see, this is an altar call in the sanctuary of the temple. And so come to the table and commune with the Lord as He communes with you in His death and His resurrection. The death is for a moment. The resurrection is eternal. Come and commune at the table with your Lord Jesus. In other words, come to the table, get reaped, and begin to live. Amen? Lord Jesus, we confess to you our pride, our arrogance, our belief that our judgment is stronger and better than your judgment. And so, Lord God, we do what you tell us not to do because we think our judgment is better than your judgment. And then, Lord God, we're captured by fear because we worry that maybe our judgment is stronger than your judgment or maybe that your judgment is not good. We thank you, Lord God, for revealing your judgment in Jesus the Christ. You wrapped your judgment in flesh and even hung it on a tree for all the world to see. We confess our sin and we receive your mercy, which you gladly give from the very moment you said, let there be light, and there was. Amen.
Maybe you ought to fear him long enough to get a good look at him and see who he is. We'll, we'll talk about that next week. See who he is and listen to what he says because this is what he says. Fear not. I'm the beginning. I'm the end. I was dead and I am alive forevermore. I have the keys to death and hell. You know, as we were singing that song, and we're going to keep singing it in a... I'll give the benediction, we can keep singing it in a minute. But, but I just thought the words in that song were, were so great. I'm a child of God. Because, you know, I think we... Sometimes I wonder, God, why do we do this church thing? You know, it's been a real pain in the neck to me, actually. Um, <laughs> but yet you keep wanting us to do it, and without it, I'm like, I'm lost or something. Why do we come here, sit here, listen to... Sing some songs, say some things, and then we do... And then we do this. Why did Solomon have to build that house and go to that temple and sit there and then watch as they did that? The high priest did that. You know, it's really bizarre because worship in Israel, and, and we downgrade the temple, we say it was stupid and everything, because why? Because Solomon would go there and he'd watch things die. Uh, consumed by fire that came down from heaven and then disappear. Uh, why did God have him do that? Well, as we were singing that song last night, as we were sitting here this morning, I just have this picture in my head that that temple was like a womb. Our church is like a womb. And we come to, to the front, to, to an altar, uh, and uh, to a veil that was closed, for on the other side is a new creation. But you remember when Jesus uh, rose, when he died, when he died, and then he rose from the dead, the curtain in the temple, it ripped from the top to the bottom. What's on the other side of that curtain? The new creation. So why does God have us come and sit here and do that? Well, because I think he doesn't want us to fear the reaper. He doesn't want us to fear his judgment. So on that day when life comes for you, you will rejoice and gladly go home rather than running and hiding in the darkness and the depths of the earth. And he will accomplish his will. But may we agree with his will and surrender to his judgment, for his judgment is life. You are the children of God, preparing to be born. He was the firstborn, and you will be born. You're begotten, and you will be born into his kingdom in Jesus' name. Believe that and live. <laughs>